Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Denise Hartley. Denise is the CEO of Intact, short for the Ingall and Tanston Community Trust, which offers support, advice and signposting services to people of all ages and in all manner of situations across the city of Preston in Lancashire. Denise, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, hi, thank you. It's a real pleasure having you, Denise. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just take that word leader and look at, look at that in isolation for a moment, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates. Uh, well, leader for me, um, well, the only way I can describe it is that I do like to lead from the front, but I do like people to be able to follow me um, in the way that um, I can be um, a good example of uh, somebody who would want to be followed. I've actually got a, I believe I'm a strong, enthusiastic, inspirational leader, and um, I have actually been leading in tech now for 25 years with 10 members of staff, but my style of leadership is to be able to uh, allow my my staff team and the volunteers just to be able to, um, you know, delegate tasks and leave them to it and then to trust them, but to have an ever-open door, that if they need to um, see me or speak to me about anything, you know, I'm always there. I believe I'm an approachable, friendly, but inspiration of a motivational leader. I suppose that's how I would describe myself. Mm. Of course, there are some really important things to take away from that, being motivational and inspirational, being able to take people with you in that sense, but also being accessible and being on an equal footing and showing some real humility because that's incredibly important when it comes to taking people with you, isn't it? That's exactly right. And and I think you just hit the nail on the head there. It is about being there, approachable, uh, and being humble enough as well to say, do you know what, I haven't got all the answers. And um, often staff have got their own answers and might come to me with a problem. Um, but I always enable them to be able to find their own solution because it's about being humble. Or sometimes it's being humble enough to also say, you know, I got it wrong. You know, what's your mm. view? And it is having that two way, really honest and open, trusting relationship uh, as a leader. I think that's really key and it's really important. Otherwise, people won't come to you with any issues, any problems that they want to actually um, to be able to deal with. I think in some ways, the journey to becoming effective leaders relies on learning from mistakes and errors, doesn't it? Because it, we're never a finished article. We're constantly developing, constantly learning. But it's just as much about admitting to those errors and maybe also looking to other people for a bit of guidance and advice as well. Because um, it's a learning experience, of course. Experience is one of the greatest teachers. But it's important as leaders to remember that we're never alone, are we? There are others around us. It's about the team as a whole. And we can learn from those people. Exactly. And I think um, the role of CEO as well, and and I'm just a speaker for myself, um, you know, like I've actually got a staff team and uh, line managers, you know, I'll have a a line manager, you know, team of people who report to me. And I've got like managers who report, you know, they have staff who report to them. But from a CEO point of view, uh, sometimes you're in the position where it's quite autonomous. To some extent, being running a charity, 
uh, my responsible to a board of trustees, but sometimes, you know, I've just got to get on with the, you know, the tasks and having, knowing and having that, um, you know, that person in, in place. So, for example, my direct report to speak to on a, maybe on a regular basis is our chairman of, um, of Insight. Um, and it's knowing that I've actually got that, um, that there, if it's necessary as well, um, but, it, but it can be quite a challenging, lonely place um, as a CEO running an organisation, especially as of late with this all this, you know, with the current uh, COVID nineteen situation. When I was talking about my style as about leading from the front, um, it's become more of a problem now when you're actually working from home. So it's actually having to be able to be adapt and change to the current situation at all in all areas of your working life, I suppose. And considering that during your working life, um, Denise, um, you've actually received an OBE in recognition of the work you've carried out with Intact, I'm interested to understand who or what perhaps have been some of the big inspirations and influences on you as you've developed through your career and helped make that possible. Yeah, it's actually an MBA. Thank you very much for that. But um, it was actually a delight to be able to uh, be recognised as an MBA the work within the community. And I suppose, you know, on my journey, I started Intact um, in 1993. I've been with Intact now for just over 25 years. And part of my journey, I was the first paid member of staff. And uh, part of that journey was actually putting in all the infrastructure within the organisation, building the team, having this drive and enthusiasm. But in the early days, it, well, I didn't have any staff, so it was bringing the community with me and the volunteers with me instilling pride and inspiration in, in, in the in very community in which we were working and bringing them with bringing them with me and over time um, since you know I've grown the organization and, and the team but the staff team of 10 and volunteers of about 50 and we serve around about um, probably over a thousand service users within within the within uh, um, our year and the strong board of trustees, I've sort of got the ability to actually bring everybody together and uh, I'm very approachable and I think it's the driving and the enthusiasm and also the very nature, I suppose, that I actually live in the community where I work. Um, so it's a local knowledge and experience of living and working here uh, and bringing all that together and the drive and, you know, the having good people behind us and, and a community in which we're serving. I think it all contributes. To that effort um, and yes the MBA was awarded to me um, but it was for the work in, within the community and the team behind it in behind in fact all the trustees the staff and the volunteers and of course the service users coming to our building on a daily basis so it really is a joint team effort Mm, exactly and um, team efforts have been incredibly important in the context of the here and now haven't they with the emerging COVID-19 pandemic and different businesses and organisations having to feel their way through what ultimately has been an unprecedented crisis for all um, for the likes of yourselves um, at Intact uh, Denise and your work how has that been affected by what's been going on because I can imagine it's thrown up a few challenges for yourselves too well actually it has been <clears throat> quite unbelievable really because um, people are talking about now trying to get you know into this new normal. Um, I just can't believe that in um, just over four months ago, everything was normal in the way that we you know the normal working life is. 
Um, but then on March 23rd, um, we had to close the impact sent to the public that the system of the, you know, the COVID-19, the coronavirus hit, hit the world and we had to close the building and, um, I had to rally around and pull, pull things together pretty much immediately. <laughs> and so for example, the only way I could describe it, you know, I was even thinking about this the other day, or even thinking about writing a blog or a diary of some kind, my life in lockdown. Because since closing the building on the 23rd of March, um, and in, I, I, I've had to be working from home because I'm one of these uh, people who's in the vulnerable group, for example. So when we closed the centre, we had to immediately furlough three members of staff and the rest of us started beginning working from home. So for the only way I could describe it is with two heads. So, for example, from a chief executive point of view, and, and from my own personal individual point of view. So from an individual human being, I suppose I felt I spent the first two weeks crying every day at the at the loss, not just within my life, but the damage that was happening to the economy, to the community, seeing the schools closing, everything that was happening. It was heartbreaking to see this, uh, the impact across, not just within the community, within the United Kingdom throughout the world. And it was such a shock to the system. So after a couple of weeks, it's like, yeah, you know, what do you do? I was like in a grieving process for everything in my life and, and everybody else's lives. And then from a CEO point of view, what do we do about it? And we have to start to rally around and, and pull quite a lot of things together, you know, uh, making sure all the staff are, are okay, setting up things for homeworking, getting all the uh, all the trustees and the finance committee meetings and different varying meetings on Zoom, putting things in place to ensure we can st- keep still in contact with our volunteers and service users. And over the past four months, it's been such a journey where, where we were when it, when COVID came to where we are now. It feels like, is it only really four months? It just seems a lifetime away since we were, but since, since we were in that normal. You know, it's been tremendous, really, when I think about what's been happening over the, over the last few months. It, it, you know, it's just been heartbreaking, but also inspirational in a way how people pull together how all the partners in the community, all the agencies, and everybody's working together for the benefit of the, the community as a whole. There have been some incredible positives to take out of this quite difficult and quite tragic time in the sense that it has brought us all closer together, even from a distance. And people have really brought the best out in themselves in times of adversity to keep things ticking over and keep vital services being provided to the community as well. Um, And if we do think about what the new normal might hold for the future, uh, Denise, before we do wrap things up on the other programme today, um, what do you envision for the next year and what do you hope to achieve at Intact as we move through the next stage of the pandemic and hopefully look to a long-term future? Well, that I would say so it's a challenge to answer because um, what I think, what we have been doing at the moment after liaising with staff, volunteers and the trustees is to look at the next six months. So, for example, the last four months, we've had to adapt our services and how we support the community. So we've put quite a lot of online services um, to support the community. We've got like online friending scheme and, and different different all different kinds of support. But now we are following another thing what I've actually been doing as well for the past four months is, you know, just watching the government briefing every single day. 
to hear, you know, their journey, the government's journey and, you know, and the support that they've given to the community. And um, so from this now, you know, I think the next six months, it, there is a lot of unknowns because the next thing is, is we are in a lot preparing to put things um, in place. So, for example, from the 4th of July uh, and getting from July to Christmas, looking at the even the potential of opening our community building, our, our community centre. But we've got a cafe and, you know, and a local pantry, a food club. So it's actually how are we able to do this, you know, um, with the social distancing measures in place. So really, it's going to have to be a slowly, slowly, step-by-step approach. So for the next six months, we're looking to see what we can do in that in that process. And the biggest challenge for Intact as a small grassroots community or uh, charity is ensuring that we've got all the uh, income and the money in place to make our building COVID, COVID-19 safe and secure in line with the government guidelines. So that's quite a big challenge. I think money to do that, it's probably going to be in the region of just under £10,000. So the plan, it's like a two-phased approach between now, probably July and, and getting us to Christmas, what we can do then, reopening to bring people back in, service users, and then look into what we can realistically do next year with a guy from January going forward 2021. And these are all unknowns at the moment because we don't know the situation, what's going to happen with the virus. Is it going to be a second phase? So we're going to have to have like a plan A and a plan B. What we're hoping to achieve between now, July and December, and then what we want to do from January going forward, uh, but also have a plan B in place just in case things don't. Uh, turnout as we expected to do. So everything's out of our control at the moment. So there's lots of unknowns. That's the only thing I could say about that. Mm, there are a great deal of unknowns and there's still going to be much uncertainty over the next few weeks and months as we move through the uh, the pandemic and into that new normal. And it's well well and good speculating about what that might bring. But I think it would actually be really fantastic from a listener's point of view and also for myself, Denise, given how informative it's been having you on today to catch up and have you back on the programme with us um, in the year to come just to see what exactly has changed in the year, the time between and understand what sort of new initiatives Intact is getting involved with and whether that remote working that you've been getting involved in is still continuing as well under that new normal. I think I think that's exactly right and I'd love to come back on us again, you know, uh, in the future because there has been quite a lot of inspirational, interesting things that's come out as a result of the COVID. Like I said earlier, it was heartbreaking, but there's been some inspirational things. So we used to run a local thrifty kitchen pan, you know, thrifty kitchen cook and eat sessions whereby people will come to our centre and utilise all the stuff that they've got in the cupboard, you know, to make meals. But we've now moved that online, and people are actually doing cooking eat sessions online, the video online. We've actually uh, set up Zoom meetings on Facebook. We've got Zoom quizzes. We've got, um, you know, we've got, like, healthy eating programmes and healthy, you know, physical activity programmes, a number of things that we've actually set up online that's working really well. What's also been really working really well as well is setting up all the board board meetings and finance committee meetings with Zoom um, and with trustees living all over the place. You know, then we might just carry on with some of those in the future. But um, also the face-to-face stuff, I think that's been missing. I would like to be able to um, bring some of the face-to-face stuff back in the new year. 
Uh, we're looking to try to do that at the moment, um, but like it, it's a bit tricky. Um, so I think it's going to be a mixture. So for what does 2021 look like? I believe that it'll be a mixture of people coming into our building with the social distancing measures in place, but we'll also have a multitude of different options that people can actually access, like online and face-to-face activities and events. So, yeah, who knows what the future holds? Um, you know, that's all I can say, but I would look forward to coming back on and um, and telling you all about it. I think it would be fantastic uh, for that to happen, uh, Denise, and let's hope there's some positive news to share um, at that time as well. It's a shame we don't have more time on today's programme, otherwise we could discuss it long into the afternoon today, I'm sure. But um, it's been a real pleasure having you uh, join us, Denise. So I thank you again for taking the time to do just that. And until we do speak again, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on for sure, because it's certainly not over yet, that's for certain. Thank you very much, Scott, for for calling me. uh, And I look forward to hearing the podcast. Thank you. That was Denise Hartley speaking, the CEO of Intact. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence during his political career to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and he did all that despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, 
therefore they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment 
of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can 
have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on 
the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels. I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need 
careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, 
then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full 
The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, 
listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.